Welcome Trinity U friends to a beautiful Friday morning. It's October 30th. Uh, and in lieu of us meeting in person, uh, given recent events, I am recording this for your pleasure and maybe pleasure is too strong a word. We'll find out. Uh, but what I'd like you to do is as you listen to this, hopefully you've been able to read uh, some of the packet that I provided you at the beginning of Trinity U. Uh, if you did, then likely these were pretty difficult readings. So I'm recording this so that uh, we can tease out some of the main ideas in a pretty compressed time frame. Uh, and then the next time that we meet, we can uh, ask questions about these things, hopefully in a, in a bit more of an informed way. Much of this course has been a reflection on post-enlightenment philosophy. That is, what are these ideas, these intellectual currents that have shaped the way that people have thought and talked about the world that they live in after this rather, for lack of a better term, cataclysmic uh, event of the Enlightenment? And we've talked about the idea of reason needing to replace the authority lost in the Reformation. Then we talked about Romanticism as a decisive response to an overemphasis on reason following the Enlightenment. And so now we enter into a time uh, where a certain disillusionment is beginning to grow about the Enlightenment. And really it's not even so much a disillusionment about the Enlightenment as it is about uh, the modern world altogether. And here when we say modern, we mean the modern world after the Enlightenment. So one of the crucial uh, developments that we see uh, in, the, in the modern world, quote-unquote, is the Industrial Revolution. And the Industrial Revolution is, uh, like many such movements, uh, not identifiable with a particular singular experience or event, but rather with a series of events. So, for example, the idea of any level of automation, the rise of the factory, the, uh, the rise of the wage laborer, these are all sorts uh, of advances that we see largely in Britain, uh, but then they spread elsewhere quite quickly. And this is going to change the way that people feel about the world and their place within it. There are a great deal of serious social advancements that we also see as a function of the Industrial Revolution, namely things like the limitation of the workday, child labor laws, uh, social assistance programs. And this is due in part to the fact that we see unprecedented levels of human destruction as a function of the Industrial Revolution. One example that Marx accurately gives is uh, the use of children in textile factories because children's hands were small enough to fit into the narrow spaces of looms uh, and often they would lose fingers or even entire hands but the the sheer reality is that men's hands were simply too big to get into those areas so they used women and children so we can see how this gets out of hand quite quickly when you have entire generations of children who have been uh, maimed or at least seriously wounded by their vocations that they did not choose and their parents were forced to put them into in order to make enough money for the family to survive. Of course, Marx will make this the hallmark of capitalism uh, rather than a, fe a side feature. Uh, in any case, the point is the Industrial Revolution uh, really does impact the way that people think about 
uh, the point of human life, what are equitable social relations, that is, how should we relate to one another. Uh, For Christians, what are obligations like to people that may be outside the church, yet at the same time are not necessarily poor in the same way that we used to consider poverty, i.e. starvation, but poor now in terms of they have a certain low lot in life and cannot get out of that lot. And even more interestingly, we're going to see this uh, rise alongside the growth of an unrestrained capitalism, particularly in the United States. So we see people getting fabulously wealthy while entire groups of people are wallowing in a kind of poverty that the world had really not seen before. So it's against this backdrop that we get Karl Marx and Frederick Engels writing the Communist Manifesto. Now, the reading that I assigned you guys is actually not from the Communist Manifesto itself, uh, but rather from a collection of writings by Marx and Engels around the authorship of the Communist Manifesto. Uh, So the chapter that you read, The Science of Dialectics, is actually not about equitable social relations, but about the intellectual foundations for such a theory. And I think this is important because at the end of the day, the problem with Marxism is not necessarily the intent. That is, the intent is to establish, again, equitable social relations, which in many ways, uh, Christian, a Christian sense of mission and a Christian sense of transforming the world can easily affirm. The, the issue is more in the intellectual uh, underpinnings of Marxism. That is, what does it require in order to be a plausible theory of human relationality? Uh, what kind of commitments does one need to commit to from the outset? And this is where, in my opinion, Christianity and Marxism diverge from one another. So the essay begins with a discussion of dialectic. And dialectic is one of these philosophical terms which is very useful to know uh, because it has been a feature of Western philosophy from very early on. And this is something that Marx and Engels will point out pretty quickly, that you basically have a Greek version that they highlight coming from Plato and Aristotle. And then you have a German version of dialectic, uh, which emerges predominantly in Hegel. Those of you who uh, attended our last meeting will recall that we discussed Hegel a little bit in preparation for Marx, uh, in particular the idea of the Hegelian dialectic. And the Hegelian dialectic uh, is much easier to depict pictorially rather than uh, verbally, but we're going to go ahead and give it a shot anyway. And it's just the idea that there is a that there are cultures which work against other cultures. Uh, so you have a, a thesis culture, which is the baseline. Then you have an antithesis culture, which is a respondent to that first cult- culture. And then uh, in their combat or in their contention with one another, uh, they are taken into one another to form something different. This is known as the synthesis Now, the brilliance of the Hegelian dialectic is that this is not where the story stops. That synthesis between thesis and antithesis will then become another thesis. And so what will rise up is another antithesis, and then they will be sublimated together again, 
and what we will have is a new synthesis. And so with each one of these sublimations, with each one of these um, adoptions of a culture into another culture, uh, the idea is that there's a trend arrow moving slightly upward. And this is where we get the notion of progress. That is, with every passing era, parts of that era, in dialogue with other eras and other cultures, are taken up into one another. And so what will ultimately happen is that culture will reach an absolute apex. And this culture will be something like utopia or the perfect society and culture. Now, this is going to be interesting to us for two reasons. One, Marx and Engels are going to be approving of the Hegelian dialectic in one sense, and then they are also going to be quite negative about it in another sense. So they're going to be negative about it in insofar as it is an idealism. That is, it has it's predicated not on something that one can see directly in the world, but rather on an idea of a perfect culture, on the ideal of progress and growth. However, they will approve of Hegel insofar as the idea of the dialectic, that is, things being taken into other things to produce new things, so that what is old, or rather what is new, is not actually all that new. They're going to love this idea. And so what they do is they kind of take the Hegelian dialectic and they put it in economic terms. So you have the proletariat and you have the bourgeoisie. The bourgeoisie are those who have access to capital and particularly they uh, bear, they take the fruit of their own labor and the proletariat are those who do not have the capacity to actualize uh the full value of their labor. And the best way I can think to clarify this is something like uh, a fry cook at McDonald's. And if you're a fry cook at McDonald's, you can make the crispiest, most delicious fry in the whole world, and you will still get paid $9 an hour. Conversely, if you make the nastiest fry, and nobody notices, so you don't get fired because they're super gross, But let's say you make really nasty fries. Guess what? You still get paid $9 an hour. That is, you're a wage laborer. You don't actually receive the full value of your labor and production because the quality of your fries, if people come from miles around to eat them, you don't see any additional benefit. Rather, the corporation of McDonald's receives that benefit. In contrast, if I have a small business and I produce bracelets and everyone wants my bracelets, then I make more money uh, and I can leverage the added value of my production uh, for my own purposes. So even if uh, one works for a corporation and makes a lot of money, is it possible to be proletarian uh, in terms of your work? Yes, it is. Uh, because if you're a wage laborer or salaried, then in theory, that could be proletarian. Uh, whereas if you are very poor in terms of material wealth, but you actually control uh, your capacity to earn, then in theory, you have a pathway to becoming bourgeoisie. So the idea that Marx puts forward is, based on the dialectic that we just discussed, that what will happen is the proletariat Uh, that is created by capitalism. And that is a central commitment uh, of Marx, is that uh, capitalism produces 
the proletariat because capitalists need wage laborers. And so as these wage laborers uh, grow in number as uh, economies expand, then what they will do is as conditions get increasingly worse, and they will get worse for Marx, then these proletarians will join together and eventually overthrow the bourgeoisie. Now, what's Hegelian about this is, what will happen? Well, the proletariat will become the new bourgeoisie. That is, the people that did not have power will take power, and then they will become the powerful. But guess what's going to happen? As soon as they begin to control their own uh, labor and use others um, in the in the good capitalist model, what's going to happen? They are going to inadvertently create another proletariat base. And then that proletariat base is going to revolt, and so on and so forth. But what happens with each iteration, the hope is, is that you have more equitable social and economic relations. So with each overthrow, certain protections are put in so that, like Hegel, at the end of all of these revolutions, what you get is a perfectly just and equitable society in terms of economics. The materialism of the... And by the way, when we say materialism, what this means is exactly like what it sounds like. That is that the fundamental reality of the world is material. It is concrete. It is not, in contrast to Hegel, idealist. It is not based in some kind of reality apart uh, from the empirical world that we can touch and sense. So the argument that Marx and Engels are making is that this idea of uh, the proletariat and the bourgeoisie and the dialectic and the march of communism is really that people need to understand that the world is fundamentally material and it is constantly in flux. And by this, if we look at uh, page 367, which is the very first page of the reading, uh, in talking about the Greek notion of dialectic, Marx and Engels quote approvingly, and this is a quote, uh, that this insight was first clearly formulated by Heraclitus. Everything is and is not, for everything is fluid, is constantly changing, constantly coming into being and passing away. Now, I want you to think about what this means, because this may seem like the kind of thing uh, that is obvious to us. That is, we look at seasons and we see cycles, uh, but it's it goes much deeper than this, because they're arguing that all there is is change and flux. So there is nothing that is static. There is nothing that is continuous from moment to moment other than change itself. And this is in stark contrast to much of Christian teaching, wherein there are things that are subject to change, but there are a number of things that are static. So for example, the, the notion of a soul, the idea of having a nature, that is, having a nature that is fashioned after the image of God, having any kind of stability uh, in oneself, these things are simply not appropriate for a materialism. And another large influence on this is Darwin, because it was Darwin's recognition of the process of evolution that shook so much of the natural sciences uh, which were predicated on the idea of stable realities that you that one could know and could be observable through science. 
Now, there is a kind of persuasiveness to this, uh, not least because we do recognize that bodies, like so what we take as fundamentally stable, are in a constant state of change. So in 10 years, there is not a single cell of you that will remain from the person that you are now, from the body that you have now. That is, your cells are constantly dying and regenerating. So if we look at the bottom of 368, he says, quote, In like manner, every organized being is every moment the same and not the same. Every moment it assimilates matter supplied from without and gets rid of other matter. Every moment some cells of the body die and others build themselves anew. In a longer or shorter time, the matter of its body is completely renewed and is replaced by other molecules of matter, so that every organized being is always itself and yet something other than itself. End quote. Now, with a little bit of thought, I think this can be uh, assumed to be not intrinsically against uh, Christian thought, at least because the assumption for Christians is never that the stability of oneself or the stability of the body is actually what has meaning. That is, we were created from mud and the word that extended from the mouth of God. That is, uh, we are from the beginning made of earthly stuff, and it is to earthly stuff that we will return. So this is of itself not necessarily problematic. Uh, and indeed, I think there is a sense in which a Christian could say yes too, uh, because we are dependent on God for our very being at all times, in all moments. Uh, this can actually be celebrated, that it is not in our stability that we worship and rejoice, but rather in the stability of a creator and a redeemer uh, who is with us and who guides us. So this, it's not so much this that's the problem, uh, as much as if you think that the world is constantly in flux and changing, and you think that there is nothing other than economic relations, and it's worth repeating that, if you think that the foundation of all movement and change is economic and productive in character so that we can explain the world according to productive forces, then the idea of change becomes really problematic. And this is because as soon as you say that economic and productive forces are the guide of everything and we are in constant change, then what is the point of a human life? It is to manage that change by increasing control over production. And a word we might use for this is power. So bringing us all the way to the point that I wanted to, where I wanted us to come to, the problem with a Marxist account of human being is that woven into it is, a, is the necessity of exploitation and violence. That is, in order to become what you wish to be, what must you do? You must negotiate the power of economic relations and productivity at all times. So what are you always doing, according to a Marxist? You were always trying to leverage your abilities to increase your economic and productive potential. And usually, especially if you believe in a zero-sum economy, that's going to mean taking something from somebody else, or rather a scarcity economy. Uh, that is, if you believe that there are a finite, if there's a finite limit to resources and the ability to produce 
wealth and capital for yourself, then by you increasing your share, you're necessarily going to take it from somebody else. And this is what Christians must find deeply problematic because uh, the biblical text is quite clear. The fall does result in a primordial violence, and particularly that is the enmity between nature and humankind, between the serpent and human beings, and also between human beings and human beings in terms of Cain and Abel. Uh, it's not an accident that the third, uh, that basically the, the fourth chapter of Genesis, uh, immediately following the fall, has a murder in it. And it has Cain fleeing to a city uh, where there are others, and there he's, he fears violence there too. So the, the Bible is very clear that violence is a part of human life. However, that is not something, obviously, to be affirmed but that is rather something to be hoped for. That is, you hope for something different um, as history progresses. And indeed, the kingdom of God in its fullness will, have, will not have that kind of violence. So in sum, the, I wanted you to read this notion of dialectics because there is a great deal of provocative material here. Uh, it's worth thinking about. That is the idea of change, the idea of stability. Uh, the, uh, the application of the Hegelian dialectic to economics is also somewhat useful. Uh, that is, we should think about how we relate to other people economically. I do think that's incumbent upon us as Christians. Uh, yet at the same time, uh, we should be very, very, very cautious about the popularity of the Marxist paradigm because it's predicated on what, we, what I might call an anthropology of violence. That is an account of human beings that requires fundamental violence. So uh, I realize that's, uh, that may be a bit, a bit of technical information, and in this context we can't ask questions. Of course, of course, of course, please do email me uh, with any questions you have, and we will tackle them when we are in person next. So I'm going to post this uh, shortly, and then I will post a second uh, podcast related to the second reading, which was Friedrich Nietzsche, which should be uh, exciting as well. So thank you very much for your time. And uh, I hope this is the serves a uh, benefit to you.